We all have this natural tendency to obscure God's Word. We want to make His standards manageable. We want to bring things down to our level. But Jesus takes that option away from us. Um, and He provides a proper view of God's Word and its requirements. He's the authoritative interpreter. Let's put it that way. So listen now to God's holy and inerrant Word. You shall not murder. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect." as your heavenly Father is perfect. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we thank you for your goodness uh, that you have shown to us already today, the ways in which you have reminded us of our brokenness, but of your great love for us, the ways in which you have shown us that in Jesus you have showered us with blessings. And Father, we thank you also for the blessings you have provided us with in this temporal life. We return these now to you, these tithes, these gifts, and these offerings, asking that you would use these in order that your name would be praised throughout the earth, in order that the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations, in order that your kingdom would be revealed and the kingdom of darkness pushed back. Father, as we ourselves prepare to sit beneath your word, we pray that you would guide us by your spirit. Father, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would speak to each of us individually. For we all come through these doors facing many different things and experiencing many different things this morning. There are some who come through, have come through these doors who find themselves anxious and others bitter and others scared, and others hurt. There are those of us who come this morning who find ourselves at this moment to be so comfortable in life that we barely recognize our desperate dependence upon you. Father, there are those that are here this morning who wanted to be here, and there are those who are asking themselves right now, how did it ever come to be that I would be in a church this morning? There are those who come through these doors with a great many 
questions and doubts. All of us are in desperate need of hope this morning. We need you to remind us that beneath all the symptoms, the various experiences, we're really all the same. Because we are all far more broken, far more bent and twisted and corrupt than we could even imagine about ourselves. And so together we stand in need of the gospel. We stand in need of being reminded or even to hear for the very first time that because of Jesus, it can be true of us that we can be both far more broken than we can imagine and also far more loved and far more secure and far more accepted than we ever dreamed possible because of the person and work of Jesus in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. This time the children ages three to six are dismissed to children's church. You can make your way to the back of the sanctuary now. We are right now in a series on the Ten Commandments. And this morning we've made our way to the Sixth Commandment. And each week we've been looking at one commandment at a time. So this morning the Sixth Commandment, and you shall not murder. Um, I don't have the time to address it fully here, but I do want us to understand from the beginning as we come to this command that this command, it isn't addressing um, killing and acts of war. It isn't, it isn't talking about the use of lethal self-defense. It's not talking about capital punishment. Those are great questions to ponder. Those are wonderful questions to bring to the Bible and study, just not what we're going to do this morning. Because we're considering the subject of murder, which I promise you will give us more than enough to talk about this morning. Uh, we, we'll just scratch the surface of it, in fact, this morning. But let me start um, this morning by, by talking with you about the question, why? Um, why questions? They, why questions dig beneath the surface, right? Um, why questions? They dig deep to reveal reason or reasons. Uh, I, I don't know how old children are when they finally discover the power of that word, why. Um, four, five, six, maybe, I I don't know. It it seems like all of a sudden in my children, there was a day when they got it and they figured out the power of the word why. The The word why can prolong bedtime. It can prolong all kinds of things because they will ask it over and over and over. Here's a conversation I had one morning with one of my kids a few years ago. I was getting ready to leave the house, uh, to come to work. And I was putting on my jacket and one of my children who will remain nameless, um, asked me, what you doing, daddy? And I said, so very innocently, I'm putting on my jacket. That's what I'm doing. And I didn't know it. Um, but I had kicked a hornet's nest, uh, just by saying that because that's when it all started that morning. And I heard why, And I said, because I'm getting ready to go to church. Why? Because that's my job. That's where I work. 
Why? Um, well, I need to work so I can provide for you and our family. Why? Because God made me to work and he called me to be a preacher. Why? Do you want a spanking? Uh, <laughs> um, I, I'm obviously kidding, but I, I mean, that's how the word why works, right? It just keeps on digging two minutes of a conversation with a four-year-old, and I'm questioning my calling in life. Um, so it, these questions, they dig beneath the surface, and um, why questions, I, I, I want you to see how the question why really opens up this command for us. Because you see, we live in a brutal and violent world. Um, Murder, killing, and death, these are not strangers to us, right? Abductions, abuse, drive-by shootings, ISIS murdering people on our television screens, kids showing up at school with guns. We are not strangers to murder in our culture. In fact, the argument could be made that we are, in fact, a culture of violence and a culture of death. But until we ask the why questions, the tendency for us is going to be to assume that this is someone else's problem and not ours. The why questions really push back on us, right? And they force us to look in the mirror. I think that's what Jesus was doing in that passage from Matthew. Because you understand why, and then all of a sudden, applications open up all over the place. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I've got three points. I want us to consider valuing life, taking life, and finally, loving life. So valuing life, taking life, and loving life. First, let's talk about valuing life as we begin to kind of peel back and answer the question, why? You shall not murder, God says in Exodus chapter 20. Pretty simple. In the Hebrew, it's just two simple words. God says, no murder. Very simple, very direct, very straightforward. Martin Luther said that this command, this commandment teaches us how to live next door to our neighbors by valuing their lives. The commandment is telling us that God values life and therefore we should value life. But why? An artist spends hours upon hours perfecting his or her skills, right? Paying attention to every little detail, coloring and shading and lines and contrast all pulled together to create art from blank canvas to an image, right? An image that is meant to evoke reflection and emotion. And what happens when an artist sets out to do a self-portrait of himself or herself? Certainly, I think we would all understand that in any creation of any art, that artist is putting a piece of himself or herself into that creation. But especially and most intentionally, a piece of themselves into a self-portrait. David, the shepherd boy, reflected in Psalm 19 that God's glory is revealed in all of creation. 
He wrote, the heavens declare the glory of God. Right? Every part of God's creation is his handiwork. Every part bears his mark. His fingerprints are on the stars. His fingerprints are on the waterfalls and the mountains and the seas. But most especially and most clearly and most intentionally, his mark is on his self-portrait. And that is the story of creation. That's the story of you and me, made in his image. And it's why David, the same author, would write about humanity, set apart from all of God's other works of creation, and talk about how humanity itself is crowned with glory and honor, made in God's likeness. He intentionally put his mark, his stamp on humanity. So here's what this means for you and me. We do not have the right to treat people how we want to treat people. All life, wherever it is found, is to be treated with dignity, with value, with seriousness. Because all life is made in God's image and therefore has intrinsic worth and value. Let's start drawing out some applications here. A number of you probably anticipated that this command has something to say about abortion. And unfortunately, I have to treat this subject very briefly for us this morning, but this is obviously an important discussion for us. Statistics will tell us that one out of every six evangelical Christian church-going women have had an abortion in their lifetime. And I really wish, here's why I wish I had more time to deal with this. Because what often gets lost in our discussions of abortion is that God's grace is able to deal with any and every sin. I mean, His grace is able to deal with even the murder of the unborn. He doesn't just value the life of the unborn child, though He certainly does. He also values your life. And he sent his son to redeem your life. But with that said, this command calls us to stand up and value the life of even the unborn. Some of you will be voting this week. And I want you to understand this morning that this isn't a political, a Republican, or a Democrat issue. This is not a freedom issue. This is a life and death issue. Immersed in a culture of violence and death, we are to stand not on the sidelines, but aggressively for the life of everyone, even the unborn, who are made in the image of God. Opposite end of the spectrum, this has something to say about how we treat the elderly as well. A major ethicist at Princeton has argued that the elderly in our country ought to be euthanized. And his reason for this is because they spend over half of the country's resources on health care in the whole of their life in their last six months. This is what he's saying. He's saying there is a point when life no longer matters. And the elderly have become a worthless drain on society. And many of us think, 
Well, that's extreme. I would never do that. No, but here's what we do. We ignore the elderly. We disregard the elderly and we treat them as if they don't matter and are simply to be tolerated. Immersed in a culture of death, right? We become indifferent to them. And we shut them up in our nursing homes behind closed doors instead of treat them with respect, honor, dignity, and value. Of all people, we are to care about life wherever it is. And see, this also means that every single person you meet in this life has value. And it means this. It means you need and I need to stop ignoring the poor and to stop ignoring the homeless and the widow and the fatherless and the foreigner within our gates. Please do not put a bumper sticker on your car that says you are pro-life if you ignore the poor and avoid making eye contact with the homeless and distance yourselves from those who are different than you. That is bold and brazen hypocrisy. God calls us to value life wherever it is found because he gave all life value when he stamped us with his image. I knew of a family in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, 20 years ago when I was there in college, and um, they, ma- they had made a decision to foster and adopt children who were born terminally ill. And the children they brought into their homes, they all died, some within hours, some within days, and some within weeks. These were children born to drug addicts. These were children born with such medical conditions that their lives could only be supported for a very, very brief window outside of their mother's womb. These were babies who were born without developed brains or with nervous system problems. Some of these unwanted children would come into their home and they would cry nonstop for weeks and the only to be silenced by their death. They, this family buried dozens and dozens of these children. They honored these children in life and in death. I mean, how could you do something like that? I mean, how could a family endure such suffering, such pain and death? How could a family absorb so much cost and discomfort and sorrow The only way they could do it, and the only way you could do it, is if you valued life, if you valued life not because of its quality, but because of its sanctity. Because only then could you see a baby with an undeveloped brain and know he or she had infinite value because he or she was made in God's image. That family... I'm giving them to you as a picture because that is a picture of someone who is aggressively pro-life and values life. Let me switch gears slightly and then we'll move on. But let me turn this back on you for a brief second. In addition to all that we have said so far about valuing life, this necessarily means that you have value too. 
no matter who you are or what you have done. You see, we all struggle, I think, with differing forms of insecurity. And all of us find ourselves wondering if we matter, if we're significant, if we have worth. This command puts all those doubts to rest. Because this command is saying that it doesn't matter where you are from or what you have done or who you are, you have value because you are made in the likeness of God himself. Let's move on to consider the second point, taking life. So let's begin to narrow our discussion a little bit here. Um, When have we taken life? When have you and I pulled the trigger, so to speak? Here's where I want us to look at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, because he's taking us beyond physical life, right? He's exposing the root of violence that lies in our hearts. He's showing us the way we take life long before physical life is touched. In verse 21, Jesus began by saying, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. And Jesus was saying something like this, I know that you have heard about the sixth commandment. And there is a tradition about what this commandment means. He's saying, you heard that it was only about physically taking someone's life. But then Jesus lowers the hammer. And he says, but I'm telling you that murder is when you say certain things to people. Murder is when you act certain ways toward others. When you look at others with certain expressions and when you have a certain attitude towards others. See, when we dig into the why of this command, it starts to deal with our hearts. In verse 22, when Jesus said, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He was exposing the root of of violence. Have you ever been angry with someone? I mean, felt your blood begin to boil, clenched your teeth. To avoid from saying saying certain things. Felt your temperature rise when someone got in the way of something you wanted. Have you ever wanted to write someone off, be done with them? Or watch someone fall into disgrace? Of course you have. Of course I have. We've all been angry. See, so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, the violence, the brutality... It is in your heart already. In this passage, Jesus tells us that we are guilty of taking life when we insult our brother. Or you might have a translation that that says uh, something about when you call your brother Raka. Um, What does that mean? what, What is it saying here when it's talking about insulting our brother or calling him Raka? Another way to translate it is to say, when you say to your brother, you're nothing. Right? It's to look down on someone, to treat someone as beneath you, to treat someone as less important, like they don't matter very much. It's deciding that so-and-so could never be a part of your circle of friends. The opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. You know, let me say that one more time. The opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. 
maybe after the service, somebody can help me figure out who, who this was. But several years ago, I heard an interview on ESPN with an NBA player who came out of the closet as a homosexual. And I can't remember who that was because I was trying to search for it this past week. But one of the NBA coaches made some really hateful, vicious remarks about this man. And so someone from ESPN asked this man how he felt about those remarks. And his response utterly surprised me um, because he said that he was okay with the hateful and angry words of this NBA coach. He understood that and he appreciated that. But he said what really hurt him the most were people who tolerated him and treated him indifferently, like he didn't matter, like they considered him so worthless as to not have an opinion about his lifestyle. They simply ignored him and wrote him off. What is it in us that causes us to look at our brother or look at our sisters and say or think, you're nothing, you're beneath me? unimportant. It's our pride because we think we are a cut above, so sophisticated, so together, right? So much more than it's turning our nose up at people and treating them like they are nothing. And Jesus says that is murder. But then Jesus went on to say that we've taken someone's life when we call that person, when we call someone a fool, the Greek word is moros, where we get our word moron, But again, it's looking down on someone. It's a refusal to take someone seriously. You don't deserve my time. It's when you hear someone, but you don't really bother to listen to them. It's when you ignore and when you avoid certain people. Look, to be told that we are made in God's image, right? That should give us a great sense of value and worth. But you know what else it should do? It should humble us. To know that all humans are made in the image of God must mean that the poorest man or woman who ever lived on the face of the earth has just as much value as the most wealthy, most powerful king who has ever lived. The moment we start thinking there are important people and not important people, there are people worth knowing and people not worth knowing, the moment that happens... We are guilty of murder, of taking life. And this is how I know. We use this litmus test of our own experience. What does it feel like when someone looks down on you? What does it feel like to be ignored? Right? To be looked over. What does it feel like to be in a relationship but feel unimportant in that relationship? What does it feel like to be tolerated, to be put up with, not worth love and not even worth hate. If you're honest, it feels like someone grabbed your dignity, your worth, and your value and crushed it. Jesus is saying your words, your looks, your attitudes, you often use them like weapons. We all learned it on the elementary school playground, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And that was a huge lie. 
as adults, we know how untrue that is. We know that sticks and stones may break my bones, but my bones will heal. A word spoken in hatred will kill me. Right? A look from someone that says, you don't matter, will annihilate you. Right? Kill you. To, I mean, to be brushed off and ignored, that will destroy you. Words and looks and attitudes have become our weapons of choice. Weapons to dismantle, to undo, to cut, to tear, to scar and maim God's image in others. You know this. Words from a parent or a friend or a spouse or a coach or a teacher or a boyfriend or a girlfriend spoken years ago, even decades ago, they echo into your life for years, for decades. Don't tell me that we don't take life with our words and our looks and our attitudes. They have far more strength than sticks and stones. Words will kill us. And... Words also reveal, right? They reveal not only how we have been hurt, but how we have taken the lives of others. They reveal the pride and the arrogance and the brutality and the violence that lie deep within all of our hearts. Now, that's a heck of a way to end the second point, (laughs) kind of a slap in the face. But I think we have just enough time... um, to consider the hope of the gospel for murderers like us. Finally and positively, the command is telling us to love life. Very quickly, you realize that when Jesus set himself to explaining the sixth commandment, he didn't stop with don't murder. He's telling us that the command is to affirm and to love life wherever it is found. The command is to be aggressively compassionate, reconciliatory, merciful, and loving of others. It it jumps out at us in verses 23 through 24 of Matthew, uh, chapter 5, doesn't it? So Jesus says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. What jumps out here? What jumps out here is that Jesus is saying, well, he isn't saying, if you are angry, go and be reconciled. Right? He's saying, even if someone is angry with you, you make the first move. Don't wait for an apology. Don't come worship me. Go be reconciled. The troublemakers in your life, right? The people who make it so hard to get along with them. He's saying, don't even think about worshiping me until you fix that relationship. He's saying, you don't understand the first thing about worshiping me if you ignore those who have been wronged by you. See, every life has value to Jesus. Even the most overanalyzing, irritatingly suspicious, annoying person in your life. And we all have those people in our lives. Jesus says, if they're bothered, go and be reconciled first. He's saying it's your move when they're angry with you. Now, the problem with this is that we also read verses 43 through 48. Okay? Because here Jesus says... 
You only fulfill the sixth commandment when you actively show love to your enemies. It's one thing to show love to someone you have offended. It's a whole other thing when you have been offended. Right? When you have been wronged, when you've been treated unjustly, when someone intentionally has hurt you. See, some of you might have been anticipating this. You take these two passages together and Jesus says, no matter who you are, no matter what has happened, whether you are wronged or the one who has wronged someone else, it is always your move. None of us are free. Wronged or doing the wrong, it's our move first. Lots of moral codes in Jesus' day said, don't pay your back, don't pay your enemy back for evil. There's nothing distinctively Christian about that. Jesus goes so much farther. Actively, aggressively love life. He is saying, love even your enemy who is made in God's image. Probably 20 years ago, I heard this story of a young married couple, and it stuck with me. Um, Early on in their marriage, this young couple, they both became Christians, and they started attending a church. And it took this couple several years before they were able to get pregnant and and have a child. And so they were very, very excited uh, when she got pregnant. And so there were lots of baby showers and gifts and baby room decorated and all that kind of stuff. And she had a a wonderful delivery. But in the nursery of the hospital, a nurse mistakenly hooked her child up to an IV with the wrong medication. And that little mistake was a big mistake because it left that child with irrevocable brain damage. And her pastor came to see her in the hospital after hearing this heartbreaking news And he said that he walked into the room and he saw her sitting in a chair, rocking this child and singing to her child. And he said, I heard the news, but I'm going to be honest with you. I have no idea what to say right now. I'm just sorry. And she said, well, we're just fine. And the pastor was stumped, and he said, how can that be possible that you're fine? And she said, well, I can picture, I can imagine someone holding up my child and asking, who wants this baby? This child will never be able to eat on his own. Will never be able to go to the bathroom on his own. Will never be able to dress himself. Won't ever be able to leave the bed Who wants this child who will never even be able to say thank you for all that you do for this child? And she continued. She said, I can imagine that and I can see myself jumping up to say, I want that child. And the pastor asked, why? And this is what this young Christian woman said. She said, because I can imagine someone holding me up and saying, who wants this woman? She will lie to you. She will stab you in the back. She will disrespect you. She will gossip about you. 
she will hurt you. And she said, and I can imagine Jesus standing up to say, I want this woman. See, the pastor had asked why. And with that simple question, he dug deep and discovered beauty. A beauty that only the gospel could create. See, even pastors miss it from time to time, right? Even pastors fail to trace at times the implications of the gospel. Jesus calls you to love your enemies. Why? Because Jesus loved you when you were his enemy. He calls you to make the first move. Why? Because he made the first move towards you in your brokenness. He calls you and me to value life wherever we find it because he valued us when we wanted nothing to do with him. On the cross, Jesus, he changed places with us. He took the place of murderers and died the death we deserved. And because of that, we are now set free, set free from the bonds of hate and anger and bitterness and arrogance and pride, set free by grace to show grace, set free by love to show love, set free by mercy to show mercy, to love life wherever it is found in the poor, in the aged, in the unborn, in the homeless, your co-workers, your neighbors, your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Sink yourself into the love of Jesus, and there you will find power to love one another. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your love that you show to the undeserving. Father, remind us that all life has value because life You created life in your own image. And Father, we pray that the gospel would take us to deeper depths than we have ever imagined for valuing the life around us. We pray that we would understand that it is in Jesus that though we are broken, we have found peace. That in Jesus, though we are stained through and through with our sin, We are clothed in his righteousness. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace. We pray that you would enable us by the power of your spirit to trace out its implications in all of our relationships in order that you would be honored, in order that you would be glorified. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.